Well, happy Easter, or more accurately, happy Resurrection Weekend, everyone. Yes, indeed. Not only those of you who are joining us online, but also those of you who are meeting together here at Central Campus, and those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, down in Bridgeland, South Calgary, and also in Northwest Calgary. So a story is told of a teenage boy who just longed to have a German shepherd. For several months he whined, he pestered his parents until they finally gave in, went to the local SPCA shelter and allowed him to pick and bring home his favorite dog. A week or so later, this young man happened to look out the window and to his horror, he saw his dog with their neighbor's rabbit in his jaws. And the dog was shaking the life out of the poor thing. Now his family didn't get along very well with these particular neighbors, so he knew this was gonna be a disaster. He ran outside and he ordered the dog to let go of the rabbit, which the dog did very obediently. Now when he realized the rabbit was dead, he panicked. He picked the rabbit up, he took it inside, he gave it a bath, he blow-dried its hair to its original fluffiness. And then he snuck into their neighbor's backyard and propped up that rabbit back up in its cage. And as he slowly backed away from that cage, he had to admit, that rabbit looked very much alive. About an hour later, during the supper hour, his family heard the woman next door screaming. Being concerned neighbors, they rushed over and said, what's wrong? She cried, it's our rabbit, our rabbit. He died last week, we buried him, and he's back. <laughs> now one of the reasons that we laugh at this story is because we know that dead rabbits stay dead. And this perspective, the dead creatures stay dead, is especially pertinent this weekend as we Christians celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. See, most people accept the well-documented historical record that Jesus was a real person, that he was a great teacher, that he taught profound truths and did wonderful works, and was crucified. However, many people do not accept the resurrection of Jesus as historical fact. And that is not because there's a lack of compelling evidence for his existence and his resurrection, but because many people have a worldview that does not believe that miracles are possible. These people struggle with even examining the evidence for Christ's resurrection with an open mind because as far as they are concerned, dead bodies stay dead. And of argument. Now let me just say, if you want to explore some of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, go online to our church website and look up my Easter message back in 2014, which is part of the Why Believe series. But you see, that's the question we want to examine today. Do dead people stay dead? When you die, is that it? Is what you believe, is that what you believe about your loved ones who have died? 
Now, my sense is that most people today believe that dead people do not stay dead, that their spirit lives on somehow. But many have no idea why they believe that or on what basis they believe that. Well, Christians believe that dead people do not stay dead. Because on the authority of the scriptures, along with the, all, uh, the very compelling evidence for Christ's resurrection, we believe that our Lord Jesus Christ lives. And because he lives, we believe, even though we may die in this life, we too will rise and live with him forever. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or died in him. Because Christ lives, those who know and trust him will also live with Christ eternally. Now, on the other hand, if Christ has not been raised, well, then the great theologian Bugs Bunny is absolutely correct in saying, that's all, folks. Our faith is futile. Our preaching is in vain. We're still lost in our sins without hope. And when we die, that's it. Atheist Richard Dawkins has said, if the resurrection is not true, then Christianity becomes null and void. And he's right. The reason Christians take the resurrection of Jesus so seriously and keep talking about it is because the Christian faith is built on the life, death, and the resurrection of our Lord. You see, other religious teachers, they put their teaching out front and they say, follow these teachings. Jesus put himself out front and said, follow me. Other religious leaders say, this is the path. These are the steps. This is the way that you should go to find eternal life, to find truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus essentially said, my resurrection will prove that I am God the Son. It will prove that my teachings and my promises and my prophecies and what I accomplished on the cross to redeem and to set people free is true. And so I'm wondering, where do you stand with Jesus today? Is he your living hope? Or is he someone that you hardly know? If you're visiting today, it's possible that the only reason that you're here is because of family tradition or because someone promised you a meal that, and you haven't had a good meal in weeks or because your mom made you come. Or maybe you came because you met someone and she's so cute you'll go with her wherever she wants to go even if that means going to church. And so here you are. Or maybe, just maybe, you're here because you're genuinely searching for answers. Like a young man was 
who approached me after a service some time ago. And he basically said this. He said, okay, for argument's sake, let's say that Jesus is for real. Can you explain to me why Jesus had to come to our planet in the first place? Why he had to suffer the way that he did and die on a cross and why any of this should matter to me? Well, whatever your reason is for being here today, I'm going to attempt to answer the questions that young man asked. And I'm going to challenge you not to hit the snooze button, but to track with me because what I'm going to be talking about could forever change the trajectory not only of your life, but your eternity. Through our worship services last week and on Good Friday, we've learned about the promise of Christ, we've learned about the brokenness of Christ, and this weekend we're going to examine why Jesus came and how he rescued us through his death and resurrection. And to guide us in this, we're going to examine a scripture passage in Romans chapter 3. I'm going to invite you to stand and read this passage along with me. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you with our hands open and we want to receive from you today. We ask, Lord, that you would focus minds, that you would soften hearts, and Lord, you would give courage where courage is needed to do what you're calling us to do and to be. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So full disclosure, I do not like watching baseball. I'm okay watching baseball highlights, but sitting through a game is not one of my favorite activities unless I'm with some people that I really like being with because I have found when I have gone to I think I've gone to about two baseball games in my life. But when I have gone to baseball games, you can do a lot of talking while a baseball game is on and not miss much. <laughs> now, people who are really into baseball, they will tell me that there is a strategic, unseen part of the game that keeps them riveted to the game, but I'm not into that. Now, perhaps you've noticed that even though certain players are seen as superheroes by baseball fans... When it comes to their batting average, they really aren't doing that well. I mean, the very best hitters get about three hits for every, three, uh, for every ten tries. That's not a very good percentage for most jobs, if you think about it. How would you like to have a doctor perform surgery on you if only three out of ten people survived the surgeries? <laughs> but in baseball... If you get three hits out of ten tries, they give you big bucks, and they make you an all-star. 
But the reality is in baseball, no one is very good when measured against the absolute batting average of 1,000. In fact, no one has even made it halfway to the perfect standard. Now, it is in this way that baseball is like life. In the passage we just read, the Apostle Paul essentially says, if you want to know why Jesus came to this planet, it's because we have a sin problem. In verse 23 he writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some of us may have a moral batting average that's a bit better than others. But we all fall short, big time, of God's perfect righteousness. Now when it comes to baseball, we understand and accept this as reality, but we don't always accept this as a reality when it comes to our spiritual life. Many people in our society overrate themselves spiritually. It's called moralism. Moralism is the belief that if I live a reasonably decent moral life, if I treat people fairly, if I vote and pay my taxes and give to charity, I need not be concerned about where I stand with God come judgment day. Now these same people will say, of course, the murderers and the drug addicts, the drug dealers rather, and the pimps and the child molesters, well, they're going to be in big trouble come judgment day. I mean, they're obviously destined for hell. But I'll be just fine, they say. Because even though I'm not perfect, my moral batting average is better than most people. Now, that rationale may work in baseball. But it doesn't work that way with God. Because his standard of measurement is not how we compare with others. His standard of measurement on judgment day will be Jesus. You see, heaven's a holy place. It's a perfect place because God will be there. And so in order for us to go there, we have to be perfect. Otherwise, it wouldn't be perfect once we arrive there. Paul says here, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory or the perfection of God. And folks, that means we've got a serious problem. We have a sin problem and are therefore separated from God who despises sin. So what is sin? I love the way Rabbi Zacharias defines it. He says sin is violating the purpose for which we were created. For example, a car is used, when a car is used to kill people rather than to transport people, its purpose is being violated. Well, when God created us, he intended for us to glorify him, to be creative, to use the talents and the gifts that he gave us to manage and to care for his creation. He, he created us to reflect his character his love, his joy, his patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness in our life. 
And so when we take matters into our own hands, whatever the reason might be, and behave contrary to his ways, when, for example, instead of telling the truth, we choose to lie, we are sinning because we are violating God's purpose for our lives. Sin is putting your trust in something or someone other than God for your satisfaction, for your significance and security in life. It's saying, I don't trust you, God. I don't believe you're for me. I don't believe you have my best interests at heart. And so I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own way rather than yours. And that's sin. And Paul says, we all have sinned. We've all gone our own way. Back in verse 10, he writes, there is no one righteous, not even one. All of us in this room and on God's green earth, we've all blown it. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages or the cost of sin is death. Sin is a fatal disease. It separates us from God. It chokes the life, the power, and the direction of God right out of our life. We may justify our sin, we, believing that it's inconse- uh, inconsequential. But regardless of whether our sin is great or small, or whether its effects are readily apparent or not in the moment, it is destructive and prevents us from reaching our God-given potential. It blinds us to God's best for us. It deadens our soul. And if it is not addressed, it's going to result in us being separated from God for all eternity. Sin is serious business. That's the first truth that Paul spells out here in our passage. We have a sin problem. The second truth is this. Jesus came because we can't fix our sin problem. Many people today believe that they, appease, they can appease God, they can atone for their sins by trying harder to keep the rules and the rituals and just live better lives. Well, that's commendable, but verse 20 says this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This passage clearly articulates that we don't win God's favor or we don't get to heaven by trying to earn or to, appease, or to impress God with our good behavior or our good works or by trying harder to keep the law like the Ten Commandments. You see, the Ten Commandments are like a mirror. A mirror shows you that your face is dirty, but it is incapable of cleaning or removing the dirt from your face. In the same way, keeping the Ten Commandments won't cleanse you of sin. It won't make you right with God. The Ten Commandments can only reveal that you have a sin problem, that you've got an issue with God, and point to your need for a Savior. People ask me, well, why can't I deal with my sins and regrets by committing to being a better person going forward? 
I mean, can I make the good stuff outweigh the bad stuff? Now again, committing to being a better person is a good thing. It's just that God says it isn't the solution for dealing with sin. Let me try to explain it this way. Let's say that you have a sports car with a high-performance engine, and with your permission, I take it for a spin. And let's say I get so enthralled with how powerful that car is that I sin, I break the speed limit. I fail to negotiate a turn, I hit a tree, and I destroy the front end of your car. So my sin wrecked your car, and I assume you'd like it to be fixed. Now, instead of paying you for the damages, suppose that I said to you, I believe your car will be repaired if I commit to being the best driver in Calgary from now on. I'm never going to speed again. I'm not going to text or talk on the phone when I'm in the car. If someone cuts me off in traffic or tells me off with special sign language, I'm going to smile and wave and say, God bless you too. Now obviously you wouldn't be impressed with my solution for repairing your car because even if I won the best driver award in Calgary, your car would still be a wreck. You see, this is what every religion other than Christianity would have us believe. It's believing that even though I have ignored the holiness of God and made a massive wreck of things, if I just do good going forward, if I just do better, if I just jump through the right hoops and do the right things and exercise the right rituals, if I just try being a good person going forward, somehow the crime I've committed against God is going to be rectified. But unfortunately, God's economy doesn't work that way. My good behavior going forward is a good thing, but I still need to pay to have your car repaired. Now, in the earthly realm, paying to fix a car is possible. But in the spiritual realm, it's not possible for me to pay for my sin. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment. But my point is, we can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. Which leads to a third truth that we see here in Romans 3. God has made a way through Christ. Verse 21 talks about the righteousness of God given through Christ. Romans 5.8 puts it this way, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned their back on God, God has been pursuing us, wanting to restore us to himself. And in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus to make a way for us to be reconciled again with our Heavenly Father. In Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. 
Now, some people really react to this idea of being lost. To them, being lost means to be weak, and that's partially true. But in this context, the word lost primarily implies value. You see, you don't search for something that has no value. For example, you drop a penny, and most of us would just keep walking. Lose $100, however, and we'll spend a whole lot longer searching for that $100. But lose a child, and I don't need to tell you, you won't rest, you won't eat, you won't know the meaning of peace until your child is found. You see, that's the kind of love that God has for us. And he's pursuing us, wanting to have a relationship with us, trying to get our attention. Now, as I mentioned earlier, people ask me, well, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Just don't get that. Why didn't he just declare to the world, your sins are all forgiven? End of story. Well, for the same reason that asking you to forgive me for wrecking your car won't fix your car. Now, please understand, seeking forgiveness and forgiving one another is a very godly and biblical thing to do. However, because of our sin, we are spiritually broken. We're separated from God. And if we're going to be made spiritually alive, if we're going to become a friend of God, God's justice requires that our sins be paid for, that the car gets fixed. He just can't turn a blind eye to it. His character will not allow him to. However, how do we pay for our sins against a holy God and against others? Well, as I said a moment ago, we can't. I mean, it's relatively easy to understand how you can pay for repairing a car. But how does a person even begin to pay for a murder that he's committed? Or how do we compensate or how do we atone for the long-term effects of gossip or unfaithfulness in a relationship. The reality is we're incapable of fixing these things in our own strength. And so God does an incredible thing. Rather than giving up on us, he gave up his precious son, Jesus, who out of love for us willingly came to earth and redeemed us and atoned for our sins. He did what we couldn't do. Look at verse 24. Paul writes, And we all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Christ came to redeem us and to atone for our sin. To atone means to satisfy. When Christ died on the cross in our place, he satisfied God's justice and wrath that was directed 
not at us. Please understand that. It wasn't directed at us. It was directed at our sin. In terms of my illustration, the car I wrecked, he paid to be repaired. And now you are satisfied. Justice has been done. The price has been paid. To be redeemed means to be released through the paying of a ransom. You see, in Paul's day, people would buy slaves like we buy a toy today. And they could do whatever they wanted with them. The slaves had no rights at all. Now, suppose you're standing in the marketplace offering yourself as a slave. And someone comes along and asks you, how much do you, do you owe? And you say, I owe a million dollars. Now, suppose the individual that asked you that question were to take out his checkbook and write a check for a million dollars and buy you as their slave. But then instead of keeping you as their slave, they let you go free. Can you imagine the shock and the gratitude that would well up inside of you for that individual? Well, that's what Jesus did for you and me. His grace is free, but make no mistake. It's cost. It cost him everything. He came to our planet. He died on a cross to pay for the price that was on our heads. When you put your trust in Christ, in the spiritual realm, an amazing life-changing exchange takes place that only Jesus could accomplish. When you repent of your sins, your sins are placed on Jesus. And when you ask Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, He invades your life, becomes one with you, and places his righteousness on you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin, that's referring to Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That in the spiritual realm, God would see us as complete and perfect, acceptable to him. Hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, Isaiah, the prophet, described the coming Messiah this way. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus. This is hundreds of years before Jesus hung on the cross. He said the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. The day Jesus died 
all the sins of the world, every murder, every torture, every form of abuse, every rape, every despicable sin that was ever committed down through time was placed on him. You know, when first responders witness a terrible crime, they often require special counseling and some will go on extended leave for an unspecified period of time just trying to deal with the effects of what they witnessed. Can you imagine the horror that Christ must have faced to actually feel and endure the memory and the guilt of all the terrible, filthy, wretched sins of the entire world? No wonder in the Garden of Gethsemane, just prior to his arrest, Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Jesus wasn't agonizing over being nailed to a cross as terrible as that would be. No, he was agonizing over his role as the lamb, taking upon himself all the sins of this world, including yours and mine, and facing the wrath of God directed at those sins. And he did it for you and me. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice. Jesus never sinned. But out of love for you and me, he became sin for us. On the cross, he took all of our sins upon himself. And God the Father looked at the blood of the Lamb covering all of our sins. And his justice was satisfied. The car repair was paid for. Which is why we read just before Jesus died on the cross. He cried out, it is finished. I have paid the price for man's sin once for all. This is what Paul meant when in verse 24 he wrote, we are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Our salvation is extended to us freely by God's grace. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is a gift that, we can, only, that can only be received from him. And when we do, the Bible says here that we're justified, which is a legal term that literally means to declare not guilty. Because of Christ's atonement, God declares us not guilty. In the spiritual realm, we are in perfect standing with God. We are forgiven. We are free. Our debt has been canceled, wiped away, nailed to the cross. 
I love the way that Colossians 2.13 sums it all up. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. This is the good news of Good Friday and of Resurrection Sunday. This is why Christ came. This is why he died. And this is the gift he offers to all who will receive it. And that leads to the final truth we see being taught in this scripture lesson. Christ's gift of grace must be received. Verse 25 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And then notice it says, to be received by faith. In 1 John, sorry, in John chapter 1, the Apostle John talks about Christ's coming. And he writes this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Charles Stanley says, Imagine finding yourself on a ledge outside of your apartment five stories up. And you're there because your entire building is engulfed in flames. You are facing certain death. However, on the street below you, firemen have put a special net in place, and they're calling on you to jump into the net. After considering your options, which are none, you come to the conclusion that there's only one way of escape, and that is to jump into the net, which you gladly proceed to do. The net holds you, the firemen high-five you, and you are most grateful to be alive. Now, you see, in the spiritual realm, that net represents God's grace. It represents what Christ did for you and me on the cross. It is a total gift. You didn't pay for that net. It was offered to you as a gift. But here's the thing. You can believe the net is your only way of escape. You can believe that that net will save you, but unless you exercise faith and act on what you believe to be true by jumping, that net will do you absolutely no good, and you will die. In the same way, all that Christ did to make a way for you and me to be saved will be of no avail unless you take a leap of faith, not into a net, but into the arms of Jesus and receive the gift of grace, the friendship, the life of joy, peace, and satisfaction and fulfillment that he offers us as we walk with him daily. And to receive it, your hands must be open and empty. 
And the Christian term for that is repentance. Repentance is taking ownership for your sin. No longer justifying it, by, but acknowledging it to God and, and, and then turning away from it. Repentance is humbling yourself and acknowledging that you can't fix your sin problem. That you need Jesus to do what you can't do. And receiving his grace by faith. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a moment. But first I want to go back now to remind you of why Jesus' resurrection matters. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And notice he goes on to say, You are still in your sins. If Jesus is not alive, it makes absolutely no sense to be a Christian or to believe a word of what I've shared today because everything I've tried to explain, every scripture that we've read hinges on Jesus. And if Jesus is still dead, well then, that's all, folks. But, says Paul in verse 20, Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. And you see, that changes everything. If Jesus is alive, then he is God as he claimed to be. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life as he claimed to be. If Jesus is alive, then the scriptures which he authored are true. It means his promises, his commands, his precepts in the Bible are true. See, we may not like parts of the Bible. Some of us might even be offended by some aspects of the Bible. But if Jesus is alive, then we're just going to have to take those scriptures seriously, whether we like it or not. If Christ lives... It means he atoned for our sins and that we can be reconciled with God. It means we too will live forever. Because he rose again, we know that the same power which raised him from the grave is available to us today to live a life of freedom and victory in Christ. Because he lives. No situation is hopeless We serve a living Savior, and that changes everything for life and for eternity because it means that Jesus is part of the equation, and with Christ, all things are possible. Confucius is in his grave. Buddha is in his grave. Muhammad is in his grave. But Jesus lives. And friends, that means he is worthy of all the glory. He is worthy of all our praise. He is worthy of our worship, our trust, and our total devotion. And so in closing, I'm going to ask again, what are you going to do with Jesus? 
John 3.36 is pretty blunt in what our options are. It says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. So who are you putting your trust in to rescue you from the grave? To rescue you from sins and your regrets? Who's your hope resting in? Another human being? Some belief system that someone came up with? I submit to you that there's only one source of hope that is absolutely, irrevocably, completely reliable, and that is my Jesus. No one will ever love you more than Jesus does. He died to prove how much he loves you, and he rose again to prove not only that he's all-powerful, but that he's totally trustworthy. I live for Jesus because he's alive. He's alive. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he die. I've examined the evidence, and I have no doubt that, he's, that he rose from the grave. I know he's alive because I've experienced him. I've experienced his presence, his power in my life. I have found that he is a rock upon which you can stand, a shelter, a fortress in times of storm. And he's a true, reliable friend who will never leave you or forsake you. Have you put your faith in him? Have you embraced his gift of grace? Would you just bow your heads, close, close your eyes. This is a sacred moment because I believe that you're not here by accident. You're here because God wants to get your attention. And he wants to tell you that you matter to him. He's been pursuing you for years. I'm going to close with a prayer, not unlike the one I prayed many years ago, that changed the entire trajectory of my life and my eternity. And so if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, if you want to accept this amazing gift of grace by faith that we just talked about, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer along with me right now. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for loving and pursuing me all of my life and for seeking to get my attention. Lord, I realize I have a sin problem. I struggle with pride. I struggle with wanting to do things my way rather than your way. And I acknowledge it's cost me dearly. I also acknowledge that I can't fix this myself. I need a savior. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to die for me, for atoning for my sins on the cross, for making a way, not only for me to be forgiven, but to live in freedom and power through the same power that raised you from the grave. Please forgive me for my sins, Lord. Come into my life. Make me the person you created me to be. Live your life of love, joy, gentleness, kindness, and patience and goodness through me. I choose to trust you with my life to follow you as Lord going forward. For I pray it in 
Jesus' name. Now, friends, just look up here. If you prayed that prayer sincerely from your heart, the scriptures tell us that in the spiritual realm, and I touched on this a moment ago, God took all of your sins, your regrets, and put them on Jesus. And he took Jesus' perfect righteousness and placed it upon you, making you whole and complete in him. The old is gone, the new has come. You are now a forgiven child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I challenge you to believe that and to step out and grow in becoming a friend of God. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to answer your questions to help you get connected with others. We'd love to encourage you in any way that we can. And so I'm going to ask you, just to do something right now, and that is to take out that bulletin you received when you came in. Just open it up. I'm going to ask you just to provide us with your name and contact information, and also indicate the decision that you made today. Please start filling it out right now. And when you've done so, you can tear off this portion that's part of the bulletin here. You can place it in one of the containers um, at the exit on your way out. At this campus, it's at both exits. Whichever campus you're at, there will be some place where you can place it. And we encourage you to do that. And then I just want to give a brief word to Christians here today. How is the fact that Christ lives impacting your life? You see, you can't be a Christian and live like Jesus is still in the tomb. If Jesus lives, then it makes absolutely no sense to be partially surrendered to him. It makes absolutely no sense to, you know, to believe and follow part of the scripture and ignore the others. In fact, partial surrender really raises the question whether we believe he lives. So I'm going to ask us all to stand right now. And we're just going to have a moment of reflection. And I'm going to ask you to open your hands to God and ask the Lord, what are you saying to me right now through the truth of your resurrection? Ask him to show you if there's anything that's preventing you from completely trusting him with your life, your future, your time, your finances, your relationships. Is there anything that's stopping you from jumping in with both feet and being all in with him? And after asking him questions like that, follow through and say, Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? So let's just take a moment right now and reflect on those questions before the Lord.
in a moment we're going to close by singing a song of worship to Jesus our living hope and while we sing there's going to be prayer partners and pastors that are going to make their way up here up the front the front of your campus and if you made a decision to follow Jesus for the very first time or if you renewed your commitment in a new way today I want to challenge you to approach one of these prayer partners one of the pastors that are here let them know of your decision they would love to pray with you just make your way up here even while we're singing or shortly after we're finished singing you know I I remember taking a values class in university and one of the things that was very apparent and that is a value isn't a value if you're not prepared to tell someone so if you made a decision today whatever it is tell the person you came with the person that invited you tell me tell one of these prayer partners just as an act of faith and an act of uh, indicating your commitment let's join together and close our time by responding in song to the Lord again be sure to tell someone of decision you made today and now may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace in the name of God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you.